Hello and welcome to another episode of the Live Immediately podcast with Mike Campbell. Thank you so much for listening. This is where I have conversations with people who are living life on their own terms. We dive into those big moments that have pushed them through the fears and self-limiting beliefs that hold so many of us back. Now, we've all been stuck in the rut. You know that feeling like you're continuously treading water, moving from one thing to the next thing to the next. It is something that we all get stuck in. And if we're not careful or mindful of our situation, it can cause damage to all areas of our life, relationships, health, time. My guest today, Zoe Davis, found herself in one of those ruts. But her rut had been going on for years and years and years until her body finally said, you know what, enough is enough. And she was bedridden for two weeks. Zoe wasn't able to do anything but reflect on the situation that she was in. Zoe hit a point in her life where she realized she needed to make some changes. And this is a key point in this episode for me. Zoe had been stuck so deeply in her rut that she had neglected her health. Really, she'd kind of just neglected herself. Like, why do we wait so long to make changes in our lives? Zoe had a massive lump on her right hand, but she kept putting it off, you know, putting off the x-rays, not seeing the doctor, until that pain was too much for her to handle. That lump ended up being a giant tumor. The doctors had to blast it off and then cut bone from her hip and place it in her hand. One of the things I love about listening to other people's stories is that we can learn from them. And one of the key things I learned from Zoe is that we all wait too long to make changes in our lives. Sometimes we wait until it's too late. We'd rather be doing something that is harmful to our health, destructive to our lives, than to change. Because to change means doing things differently. And that is a huge hurdle we all need to get over. In this episode, we discuss being mindful about your health, setting goals that aren't about achievement, but purely enjoyment and happiness, and not ignoring that nagging feeling. I had the privilege of speaking to Zoe a week after she returned home from the hospital, and I absolutely love her attitude and this beautiful optimistic outlook that she now carries through every aspect of her life. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Zoe Davis. Hi Zoe, how are you? I'm great. Hi Mike, how are you going? I'm very well indeed, very well. And whereabouts in this beautiful world do I find you today? I'm in Surrey Hills in Sydney on a gorgeous sunny day, first day of summer today. Uh, I do love Surrey Hills. Inga and I lived there for about, I think it was maybe about a year and a half and then we moved to Darling, Darlinghurst and it was um, yeah, living in the heart of Sydney. Yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah, I, there's just no complaints. It feels alive here. Um, I was actually in Potts Point before this and have been here nearly two years, and I, I just love it. I love the culture, and you walk outside and there's people everywhere. It's fantastic. Yeah, I, I second that. But you're originally from Tasmania, if I'm correct? Yes. So I was actually born in Queensland, and then uh, my family's from Tassie. So I grew up in Launceston, Tasmania, and then moved down to Hobart for my final five years of um, of life in Tassie, which was for uni. So yeah, Tassie girl. Wow. And for all my um, North American or, or uh, non-Australian listeners, uh, Queensland's at the top of Australia and Tasmania is that little island below Australia. So it's um, 
I guess polar opposites nearly. The um the climates would be so different. But I guess you know a, a Tassie girl, you know, coming to the big smoke and bright lights of Sydney, um, <laughs> to to live her dreams. I guess. But on that, like, what were your dreams and ambitions as a twenty something something year old when you first came to Sydney? Like, what did your perfect future look like when you first stepped off that plane? Well, I actually had only been to Sydney once before I actually decided to move here and um, it was in my final year of uni and I did a law degree and a journalism degree. So I got to that final year and I really was quite confused about what I wanted to do. And then I I came to Sydney um, just to actually come to a concert and um, that concert was cancelled. And as a result, I spent this time kind of thinking, well, I'll be open to whatever happens on these four or five days I'm here. And I just fell in love with the city. So that was what motivated me to move here. And really the dream was, and and this sounds ridiculous, but I spent that last six months in Hobart, which was always cold because Hobart's always cold, um, dreaming of a life where I could be involved with music, creativity, uh, the media. I really had always loved that area. And so for me, it was about how can I get into that? And Tasmania is an amazing place to live, but it is so separate from the media and everything that we're so used to in Sydney. Um, So I didn't really know what that looked like, but I just knew that I wanted to be a part of what was happening. And that meant I used to sit around watching music videos and, you know, dorky movies about kids that make the big smoke and and do a good job. Um, But the dream was just go and and try and make it whatever that looks like. But you kind of became one of those kids that started from nowhere and made it in the big smoke because you ended up, and and, and please fill in the blanks here, but you ended up working for Rolling Stone magazine, correct? Yes, yes. Um, I... I kind of knew that magazines was probably the way for me to start because I I knew I'd grown up with them. I knew magazines quite well and I had that journalism degree. So the intention was always to be a writer. Um, but I actually ended up falling into the advertising side of things, which I hoped would be a temporary situation, but it turns out I was okay at it. Um, and so quite quickly I was promoted and in the end my role was on Rolling Stone magazine as as their national sales manager which you know I never wanted to be in sales but sales isn't what I expected it to be either Uh, but that was such an amazing role because at Rolling Stone you're so connected to Rolling Stone the original magazine and what they're doing in the US and everywhere else in the world so it felt like my eyes were open it just wasn't the way I expected to get into the music industry, but it was a really nice way to get in because it was kind of like a soft introduction. Um, yeah, it was a fantastic role. But that was five and a bit years into my career. I did that for the last kind of two to three of those five years in magazines before moving into the music industry. And it will, so then after the Rolling Stone, when you talk about moving into the, the music industry side of stuff, what, what did that entail? So I produced the um, first annual Rolling Stone Awards and the second ones as well um, as a kind of a 
anti uh, antidote to the situation with the GFC and that magazines were kind of suffering a little bit from advertising revenue. So we came up with great this great idea for an event and we produced the Rolling Stone Awards here in Australia, which was a new concept and it was so exciting. It meant the whole industry came together and really just had a great party. Um, I did the second one and within a couple of days of that, I got a call from um, a guy who was very big in the industry at the time and was a director of an agency that looked after lots of music festivals, but he was also the CEO for Big Day Out, which at the time was Australia's big, you know, coming of age festival. It had been going for 20 years. So I then ended up doing festivals and that was a whole different thing. But the festival scene was like being right in the middle of the music industry. Uh, I've had many a great days at some festivals and I've seen uh, the likes of yourself, Zoe, and a whole bunch of other people. The The amount of work that goes into pulling all those things together is just unbelievable. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I guess the music industry is quite well known for partying and, and that whole lifestyle of just having a great time. But the reality of the industry is there are so many people that just love it and work so hard and we're talking you know, there is no hours in a day that you work. You don't work nine to five in, in, in the music industry. It's about you just do what needs to be done to get the show happening. You know, the show must go on, that old that old saying, but that's the reality. It's a lot of work but so rewarding because if you're passionate about music, which I was just as a, you know, as a hobby, I just loved music, um, it feels like every day is just basically talking about stuff that you really love. It's great. But talking about that, and, and I, I guess kind of changing tacks a little bit here, you talk about those long hours and the change or effect that I guess that can have on your life. How, how was that going through your 20s and into your 30s? And I guess doing it for close to a decade, if not more, how did that really, I guess, pay its toll? Mm. I definitely am a bit of a workaholic, although I don't like to use that word anymore. But I do love working and I've always really thrown myself into it, even when I first started my career. But that can be a tough thing when you get into an industry or a career or, you know, a more senior position where there really isn't structure to your day. It's kind of whatever has to happen, happens. And if you're a bit of a workaholic, that means you could potentially work all day, every day without a break. So um, for me, the challenge was, and I don't think I did a very good job of it at the time, that I would throw myself into things, which means for whole months, six months, sometimes a year, I would just go at things, work towards deadlines, and then move on to the next one. And I did that Really, after I left Rolling Stone, where I, I did work hard, but at least there was more structure to my hours. Um, f- for five or six years, I just worked. And um, probably the first toll it took was after my first big festival tour where we toured for two and a half weeks um, all around the country. And you work these huge days, you don't sleep very much. And then when you do have some time off, that's usually spent having a good time and celebrating what you've achieved so far. I got to the end of that and I just remember being completely exhausted and ruined. Not that that deterred me from going back. (laughs) Um, But the toll is that it kind of builds up and it felt like with every year that I pushed myself that little bit further in in pursuit of that dream or whatever it was I was doing or a certain goal, 
um, what I didn't realise is that I was adding a layer of almost exhaustion to my body of, right, that's another layer of doing something which is potentially a bit dangerous. Mm. And I'm not even talking about the partying or anything. I mean, that, those were one-offs. We're talking about ongoing lack of sleep and I guess stress. I wouldn't recognise it as stress, but uh, at the time, I would now. <laughs> but stressing that, you know, that constant worrying about various things that in the end grew for me to be both a combination of physical exhaustion and mental exhaustion, which manifested in anxiety for me. Mm. It's funny that that anxiety comes up so often in in podcasts. I was actually just talking to uh, someone the other day, Kylie Alloy, who was uh, a guest on the podcast who probably will, I'm just trying to think out loud here, will come before or after you. But anyway, not to worry, <laughs> she will be on the podcast. But that's another thing, that anxiety uh, and stress. And, you know, I know that Inga definitely went through a lot of that as well. Um, mm. But when you talk about, you know, working nonstop and, and it's really hard because, hey, we've both been in that industry and I, we, we love it. We love it yeah. so much. And everyone in the industry really does. But for you, were there other areas of your life that, I guess you neglected or I guess that you didn't have time for? Um, yeah, definitely. The The reality of working in the industry you love is that you end up making friends with everyone around you that you work with. So in many ways it becomes really insular because you end up having the immediate friendship group around you at work, which means you tend to start neglecting the people outside of that group because it is so flexible in the fact that it doesn't feel like work. If I went to an office every day from nine to five and had to wear a suit and so on, I'd probably feel like I was working. But it never felt like that because we loved it. So you would end up kind of putting your whole world into this job. And actually what that meant in the end for me was going, is this all there is for me? And I didn't mean that I was, wasn't satisfied by the job because I loved it, but I knew that there was something else on the outside, be it a life, hobbies, caring about my health, exercising, seeing friends, family, going back to Tasmania to see my parents. I, I knew that there was more that I wasn't doing and didn't have time for, but it's so easy to be in it. And I guess in the end, what it made me look and think of was, do I is the music industry right for me? And I actually left for two and a half years. I'm back now, but I left for two and a half years. And that was me seeking, can I find, is it the music industry that's making me be quite isolated from, you know, having a kind of rounded life, a well-rounded life, or is it me? Mm. Turns out it was me. <laughs> it often is the person in the mirror, I find. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but like, but like talking about that. So April, 2015 was a really big month, I guess, for mm. you in your life, because on a Monday you walked in and, and you quit your job. But tell me about the weeks leading up to that. Yeah. When, when people talk about the big job, you know, quitting the big job, I, that's definitely what I did. And the job was incredible. I, I had a role as, you know, as a senior person in, a, in quite a large business. It was a very, very much more of a, a corporate business, but with an entrepreneurial vibe, which I really enjoyed. I love that whole startup vibe and excitement. But I 
had a big job. I was, you know, in, in charge of lots of things. I had to make a lot of decisions. I had lots of clients and so on that I needed to worry about, lots of money as well being exchanged um, for, with the business, which meant that, you know, a lot of responsibility in the end. I was in a position where I was actually working across the Australian business and also helping to launch um, the US version of this particular business, which when you say that to people, they just go, wow, that's so amazing. How exciting must have that been? And it really was exciting in theory. And when I sat down and had a moment to think about it, I loved it. But the reality of that was I traveled nearly every week, uh, did a number of trips over to the US, which is quite taxing on the body, especially if you're going to New York, which we were. Um, so the weeks leading up and, and I don't think I can even say weeks. I would say six months leading up, I worked like I had never worked before, considering I'm a bit of a workaholic. That I didn't even know that, that was possible to work harder. But I had done, I was really doing hours and hours and hours. I was getting up in the middle of the night to talk to the US and to make those connections because obviously that's a completely different time zone. So I had gotten myself into such a pattern of work that every single waking minute, I was focused on emails, working, phone calls, and my thoughts were focused. I had nothing else in my life. I had really isolated myself to the point where I don't believe that that, that level of work was being asked of me. There was certainly a level of pressure that, you know, was there as a, in a senior role, but I didn't know how to do anything else by that stage. I got to those final weeks and I was just sick. I was sick. Physically, I had a constant cold. I was run down, exhausted. I looked exhausted. Um, and mentally, I just had no idea anymore. I was completely out of it uh, in terms of being able to focus on anything other than work. Mm. And you, like, it's just, it's funny, like, hearing you now talk about this, like, post, it's it's so, I could imagine it would be completely different going through it. And yeah. when you when you were going through it, you... I guess took a little bit of a time out and you went down back home to see the folks in Tasmania. Describe how you, your parents looked when they saw you come through the family door again. Yeah. I mean, people would say to me, you're working really hard. You need to do this. You need to stop. And I remember thinking, you have no idea. You know, people don't know what they're talking about. I'm fine. And I really couldn't see anything. I, I don't even remember feeling like I had control over my own thoughts. I remember, you know, doing things that I didn't feel were a good reflection of my values and my personality. I might be instructed to do something and normally I'd say, nah, that's not really the way I'd do it or I'd do it like this. But I I wasn't capable of doing that. I was like almost like a robot, you know, you input the information and out comes a result. So the break actually down in Tassie, although I did go, was was almost a little bit forced. I had gone to Melbourne for an event that I was hosting and I had a really, really bad cold and I had always planned to go to Tasmania for a couple of days, the weekend. The event was on a Thursday and I was going to fly down to Tasmania on the Friday afternoon. I did the event. I was really, really unwell. I remember really clearly this kind of fever almost pulsating through my body as I stood up and hosted this event and smiled and networked and did all of those things. The next day I um I was so sick I remember calling mum in the morning and saying, I don't even know how I'm gonna get to the airport. I was just hacking cough and so I, I moved my flight to earlier and I got home and I remember mum picking me up and she wasn't annoyed at me, but I remember her saying, 
this has to stop. And I didn't have a clue what she was talking about. I thought she meant <laughs> coffee or being so sick or whatever. I didn't really know what she meant. Um, I was so ill in terms of just an infection, but, you know, they make you feel awful, that I had to stay for a week. And it was a life-changing week because I actually couldn't do anything. And what it meant was I had to be with my thoughts. I had to listen to my parents say over and over, we're worried about you. We've been worried about you for years. Um, And eventually it must have kind of weaseled its way in because before that there was just no way I was letting the thought in that this might not be the way I was going to go on. So you had never had that feeling. It was just, I guess you were on autopilot in a sense. I had the feeling when I moved from the music industry into the to more corporate because that was what I was seeking. Can I find um, a, you know, a solution to the fact that I'm exhausted? So I was aware back then. But by the time I'd gotten to this point two and a half years later, <laughs> because it wasn't changing into the corporate industry from music that was helping me, um, you know, I just had, I didn't even have time to think. I didn't let thoughts about whether this was where I wanted to be or whether I was happy or whether I was welcome into my head. I just didn't think about anything but work. And I'm not blaming anyone for that except myself, but it was absolutely autopilot. When I think of a robot, you know, that's that's what I was. And I don't mean a highly functioning one. I mean a kind of squeaky one that you think, oh, it's maybe time to retire. I just <laughs> had, yeah. No joke. I had, I just had nothing else but work. So it wasn't even a concept of this is not really working for me. And yet all of the feedback I was getting, uh, by that stage I was no longer getting feedback from friends because I simply didn't see them. I wasn't getting a lot of feedback from my family except for that week because I think they were trying to be supportive. And I don't think I had ever really exposed the full gamut of what I was going through physically and mentally to my family. It was only afterwards that I did. Um, So they had an inkling, but I don't think they were really, you know, aware of it. Um, People at work were giving me feedback that I wasn't used to, which was a little bit negative, a little bit, you know, we think you're not quite yourself anymore. We think you've uh, (laughs) become a bit obsessive. I had never had that. I'd always gotten such praise. So I couldn't work out why I was working so hard and it actually wasn't that successful anymore. Mm. Wow. Like stepping away from something, even when we know it's in our best interest, is is really difficult. Was it still hard for you to kind of come in on that Monday and, and take that step to quit your job? What was interesting was I had planned to wait a period of time to quit um, just in regards to logistics and so on. I, I thought, oh, I'll wait until this day to quit. And um, we started at 8.30. I usually got there anywhere between 7.30 and 8. And it didn't even get to 9 o'clock and something was said or something was done that immediately brought that anxiety rushing straight back even though I'd had kind of a week off. And, yes, I'd been sick but I'd also had, you know, some downtime. And within half an hour, I was just like, I have no choice but to have this meeting and and do it immediately, which I had never expected to do. I've always been very planned and very careful with how I do things so that I do the right thing by people and don't disappoint anyone. But on this occasion, it was like a force bigger than me. And it was the hardest thing I have ever done in my career. I've made some big decisions in my career, but leaving that role and, and saying, this is not about you, this is about me was so tough. Uh, yeah. The only way I can describe what happened after is it was like losing 
someone. Because I had just I had made work my life, I'd made it my partner, my friends, my family, I've made it everything. I then lost mm. a huge part of my life and, and it was almost it felt like I was grieving a person, which was a massive shock to me. Well, in a sense, I guess you were you were losing you. You you know, you said earlier that you didn't really have much else in your life you you weren't seeing your friends i'm gathering that you didn't have a like a partner in your life and so work work was everything and you you leave that and what do you have left absolutely i was completely defined by my role and and the feedback i got which meant that i became obsessive about doing things so well and getting amazing feedback because when you're not getting any feedback from any other part of your life be it having a bit of sunshine in the morning or, you know, seeing the guy at the coffee shop or whatever, you know, like it's, you're not getting anything else. So the only feedback, the only way I had to judge my own success, personality, lifestyle was this job. And as a result, by when I left, I remember thinking, what am I without that? And it's not just the job, what am I without work um, of in any way? And I, I also had this feeling of, this happened to me in the music industry. I worked so hard. I lost sight of what I loved. I lost sight of my passion and, all, and everything around me that fueled that passion. And now I've done it again. What's next? Well, that I was, guess, yeah, I, I, guess, I, I was lost. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's hard sometimes to find yourself back. But I guess what did happen then? You know, you said earlier that you were always planned and you thought a lot about things and you didn't want to let people down. But you quit without a game plan. What what ended up happening? The game plan was quite weird in that it was always there and I think it was always expected of me. So at the time I remember saying, um, because obviously you don't want to say I'm leaving because I'm falling apart. I'm falling apart physically, I'm falling apart mentally. You never want to say that. So instead what I said at the time was I'm leaving to become a consultant. I want to start my own business. And it actually was true in that I'd always wanted that. That was kind of something I knew would be in my future. But at the time there was no plan. There was no business plan. I didn't have a clue what that might look like. I actually ended up consulting for that particular business for another three to four months just to get them to the end of the financial year. And it, so as because of that, it didn't actually feel like I really left the job until July 1st um, of last year. I then went to uh, Bali to a couple of the more remote islands for a couple of weeks. I got a really bad tropical disease. That was, that was really fun. So it kind of felt like, really, I'm now trying to look after myself and now I've got this <laughs> dodgy stomach. Um, and so when I got back to Sydney and I was so unwell that I ended up in the hospital uh, from this stomach bug, whatever it was, um, I was so unwell still and I thought, oh, you know, I'm finally looking after myself, of course, in comparison to where I am now. I had no idea. What am I going to do with myself? I don't even know how to do that well. I don't even know how, how to have a holiday. I remember on the holiday just being completely stressed by not knowing how to sit and read a book or go for a swim. I just could not do it without needing 10,000 thoughts running through my head. And the poor girl that my poor friend that I went with must have just thought, this girl's nuts. Uh, but yeah, those, those first few months in hindsight feel like I was in a complete haze of trying to make my way out of, of the, the haze that was work and get to the other side. I remember being so exhausted that I really couldn't do anything, but at the same time knowing that 
I didn't know what I would do even if I did know what I wanted mm-hmm. to do. I just I had I couldn't do it even if I wanted to because I didn't know what I was going to do next. Um, yeah, to talk about the business, how that evolved was that it started with someone saying I, I had a plan to take six months off. I thought if I can take six months off, I'll be able to refocus and get back in touch with who I am and my hobbies, get my health back on track and so on. And that didn't happen. And it didn't happen because I love working. So despite everything that had happened, I did, I do really get a lot out of the work that I do. Someone contacted me within a couple of weeks of me becoming a full-time consultant and being away from that business and said, could you do a little bit of work for us? And it's just grown from there. So there was never a plan. And how I explain it now is an accidental business based on the business that I kind of said I was going to do, even though I was faking it at the time, came to life. Wow. Mm. I like that. And that accidental business wouldn't have happened if I hadn't have done all the work that I'd done because I had made all those great connections and I had, you know, worked so hard and built a fantastic reputation. So I say accidental, but it was 10 years of hard work that uh, got me to a place. Oh, hundred percent. I think, I think you, I think it's, I guess, going back to the music industry, it's we've, we've both seen overnight successes that have been 10 years in the making. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. but you know, so you, you've, your business, your freelance work is starting to kind of evolve and you're getting some clients. But you recently went and had an x-ray on your hand. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so what happened after I got back from Bali and I was really quite ill was just this awareness of being run down all the time. And I had previously had glandular fever when I was in the music industry. So I knew what it felt like to feel pretty crap. But by this stage, I had completely lost sight of what it felt like to feel great and to wake up every morning and not think, oh, that hurts or I feel yuck or whatever. Um, So I had this understanding that I needed to start thinking about my health. And I ended up going at the start of this year to uh, Sydney Integrated Medicine, which is um, in Surrey Hills. And they're they're very much about, you know, they're normal doctors in, in in the sense of being GPs, but they're very much about a holistic approach to wellness. And I got all of these blood tests and, and kind of was trying to get to the bottom of why every day I would wake up and just feel exhausted and run down and, and constantly getting sick. And I'd have two weeks of having a cold, two weeks off, two weeks of having a cold. It was just a constant cycle. And lots of things came out of those blood tests um, and one of them was that I had pernicious anemia, which if we lived in the 1900s would have killed me, but luckily now we can have a vitamin B shot and go on our way. But just having those vitamin B shots once a month or once every four weeks was just life-changing. Suddenly I had a little bit of energy and then I had a little bit more, which was great. I also was put on a plan around basically getting back to a place of health. I had forgotten how to do things like drink water. (laughs) And, you know, I wouldn't go to the toilet for nine hours of the day because I was so busy working. So just actually having a normal functioning body again. Um, When I got back from Bali, I opened a jar. So I, I got back from Bali in August 2015 and I opened a jar of pasta sauce, I think it was, and my hand, my right hand blew up 
Um, I remember thinking it was painful, but I couldn't work out why it was so big. I went to the doctor. Uh, this is before I went to the integrated medicine guys, but I went to the doctor and and he thought it might have been a kind of side effect of that tummy bug I'd had that, you know, sometimes that can get into various, I mean, look, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm not a doctor, but he had decided that it could just be an effect of that. He also said it was probably just fluid, but I had this big puffy hand and for a month, every night I would ice my hand because I was in so much pain. Again, it absolutely shows me how completely not attached to my health I was that I could have to ice my hand every night and not think to go back to my doctor and say, I think there's something more than just a bit of fluid going on. This is in August 2015, right? So then I went on to see this GP, uh, this other GP, and and she said, look, I think you've got fluid. I think it's something called a a ganglion. Um, Let's just monitor it and see what happens. It kind of just didn't go away, but it didn't get worse. Eventually she made the recommendation for me to get an X-ray, and it took three or four months for me to actually get around to doing it again it's taken me a while to work out that health is kind of important or you can't do anything else. I um, remember so clearly being in Bondi Junction um, to go and get this x-ray and thinking, oh, do I have time? Should I do it? Yeah, I should because my hand's hurting all the time now. <laughs> you know, this is becoming a bit of an issue. And because it's my right hand and I'm right-handed, I had started to lose function. I just, you know, it was starting to affect my life. So I went and got it. and. Uh, after I came out, I remember thinking that everyone was acting very strangely. I had an X-ray and an MRI, and and it was two different um, women that took them. And I both of them, I made a joke of, "Oh, can you see some fluid? Or can you see something?" And both of them said, "Oh, no, 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 we don't know what we're looking at." And I remember thinking, "Okay, if it wasn't a big deal, maybe they, they, it just felt very stern and different to what I was expecting and they then put one of those stickers on my x-rays that said do not open until you see your doctor so of course I opened it um (laughs) yeah it's my body so um and straight away I'm, I'm not a doctor I have no experience in that in that field but straight away I could see a huge growth in the middle finger of my right hand in in the bone so the x-ray very very clearly showed something I had um a appointment booked in a week later with the hand specialist at um, Prince of Wales Hospital and yeah I remember clearly walking in and him opening the x-rays and the first thing he said was whoa (laughs) and I thought oh dear I'm in a bit of trouble here so yeah and and what was the diagnosis the diagnosis was he said look it's definitely a tumor and the good news was from the very beginning he felt quite strongly that it wasn't cancerous and he's a hand specialist he saw this stuff all the time so that was a huge relief but i hadn't marked it up as a tumor i just i, I guess again i looked at that x-ray and knew that something was very wrong but hadn't even thought it's a tumor mm. i just had thought oh it could be assist or you know I just hadn't thought that it was a tumor um what happened over the next three weeks was trying to work out what sort and it ended up being something called a giant cell tumor um I had the option that it was a giant cell or a brown tumor which I think we need to have a chat to the medical profession about potentially coming up with some better (laughs) names because neither of those are very attractive um maybe a unicorn tumor I don't know but it was a giant cell and they're really unusual they're quite rare and they're even rarer in hands so 
it, yeah, the diagnosis was we actually haven't seen this before and we're not really sure what to do. It went to about 60 different specialists. It was presented at meetings and lots of people looked at it. It went to RPA to the top tumour guy in Sydney. Um, initially, the diagnosis was giant cell tumour. The thing about these tumours is they grow back uh, aggressively and they aren't usually cancerous, but sometimes they can grow back cancerous and they can get into your lungs. So they had to get rid of it completely so that it didn't grow back. My options were, and I remember this phone call so clearly, um, we either cut that finger off or we cut off one of your toes to replace the bone in that finger. But no matter what happens, that bone has to go. And without that bone, you don't have a finger anymore. And it was like, what? <laughs> because I always had this understanding after, you know, years of pushing my body and, and kind of getting away with it mm. that at no stage would it really be a pretty big decision, that no stage would I be in a position where I didn't have any choices, that was just this is what's going to happen. I was really fortunate because I've got such an amazing surgeon. He then went and looked further at potential experiment, experimental techniques and a week later came back to me and said, I've thought about this. I know you're a 33-year-old single girl in Sydney. <laughs> you probably don't want to lose your middle right finger. We're going to try something experimental instead. Are you okay with that? And, of course, I said yes. So that's what's happened in the last six weeks. I had the operation two weeks ago. It was very experimental, but apparently if you were in the theatre, which I was but I was asleep, uh, very exciting, and it was a massive success. And But, but like, just... Take me back a little bit. So you spoke about how you have, you've just had the operation and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the experimental, um, the experiment that they did was scrape the bone and then put bone from your pelvis onto your hand. But like, what was going through your head as you were driving to the hospital that day? Um, so that's exactly right what they did. But the, the bit that was kind of experimental was they used liquid nitrogen to blast the area and all of the surrounding bone in the hope that that would really kill because they couldn't actually get the bone out. And that means they couldn't take the tumor completely, which means that it could grow back. So what they wanted to do was experiment with whether they could actually kill it without removing it completely. And that was where the liquid nitrogen came in. I, um, I hate to be a cliche here, but when it comes to what's happened with my health, I have never felt stronger in my life than how I have coped with all of the ups and downs of the last six weeks of finding out about this and going through the process of dealing with amputation as my only option, which, you know, some people lose whole legs, some people are faced with terminal, you know, diagnosis. I wasn't, but it was still a big deal in my life. And my reaction was to stay positive. I absolutely, and I don't even mean I had to tell myself that. I just was super, super positive. I can't tell you why. So even going but into like, the like operation. But like on that note is like, you know, you, you've, it's one of the things that I really love about you is that you've, you have been so optimistic about all this and you said mm. that you can't describe it was like thinking of things like being optimistic about life. Is that something that you've always been or is this something new? I've definitely always had a understanding that things would work out because my mum is a very positive person and, and has always kind of said, you know, we're lucky, we're, but not lucky in the sense of 
could potentially win lotto, just more like we have got a great life and there's lots of things going for us and a great family. And so she's always instilled that in me. And when it comes to what she went through and, and what I went through in my childhood with my dad, um, I can't believe that that's how she's brought me up and that she was able to kind of go through what she went through over years and, and still say, we're so lucky for what what we've got and, and everything will work out for us. And it has. So it's always just been, I think, bred into me, but I've never really recognized it as part of who I am. And certainly it wasn't part of who I was by the, by the time I left that role, I was so negative on it. I would look for faults in myself, in others. I was constantly seeking the issue to fix the issue. So I believe that this positivity that I've got now, yes, it was bred into me, but I think that the reason it's so strong now is that I've had to go through a year of, of healing my, my mind and, and working out who I am and I've now realised that I am so much stronger than I was and that's where it's really come from. I, I definitely always had a positive spin and, yeah, not everyone would say that because if they saw me at my most stressed moment, they'd probably think, gosh, who is this girl? But, yes, it's always been there, just not in the capacity like it is now. I probably didn't realise how big and powerful my optimistic attitude to life was. And, and you know, back to the operation, how is everything now post-operation? Is, is the, the coast clear? Yeah. So he said it was a big success, my surgeon. Um, he was very excited about the whole thing, which was weird for me. Um, but he, you know, it's... It was the hardest thing I've done physically because I had no understanding of what surgery was like and, and what it was like to kind of have two separate areas of trauma on your body. I just had no idea. Um, so it was a week of feeling really awful and so on. But again, I still took this really quite light approach. And I don't mean that I didn't take it seriously. I just knew that it would be okay and that everything would work out. I have been overwhelmed with how quickly my body's healed. I'm only two weeks and two days later from major surgery and I'm, I'm back to working normally. Um, I don't have as much function and I'm doing physio, but otherwise I feel better than before I went into the operation, even though I've got bandages and so on. Yeah. Wow. And do you think a lot of that has to do with, I guess, you having this, this year of changing the direction of your life? 100%. This year has allowed me to, I reconnected with the friends that I had isolated myself from. I can't quite believe that they took me back. Some of them said, I haven't seen you for 18 months. And I thought, how is that possible that you haven't seen me? And then when we looked at it, that was true. So my friends took me back, which was really nice. I've got more friends than I've ever had before because I guess I've allowed my networks to become bigger. I've been open to opportunities of meeting people and doing new things. Um, I really have, I made a decision to dive into all areas of life. So I made a decision to really care about my health, eat good foods, eat plants, eat you know, fruit, do the right thing, drink water. I just, you know, made a decision to spend a little bit of time in the sun every day. The thing that people don't talk about when it comes to doing huge roles, especially roles that are, require you to go into an office is I didn't go out in the sun ever, not on the weekends, not during the day. I didn't take lunch breaks ever. So basic nutrients that most people get just from living a life, 
I didn't get, and I know I'm not alone in this. So I did things like I would sit in the sun for five minutes or have little breaks. I would go outside, get fresh air, breathe, listen to music, ring people I knew, ring friends. I've really actively thought about everything I'm doing and I guess it's kind of almost like a conscious decision to live, Mm. even though I thought I was doing that before. Um, And I think it prepared me to eventually deal with this, this tumor. What's bad about that is that I've had this tumor for about three years. I've had pain in my hand for about three years, which I had self-diagnosed as arthritis at the ripe old age of 31. Um, So I wouldn't have been in the situation having to have such major surgery if I had dealt with this two years ago, a year ago. But I don't think mentally I would have been able to embrace what it has given me and go, look at how strong I am. And I, I hate saying that because I'm not good at the whole... I hate, I, I, I really hate sounding like a, um, you know, a, a kind of a self-help speaker. But yeah, I, I was, um, I was surprised at how strong I was. And I think if I hadn't have had that time off, and I, I think if I had have had to tackle this while I was working in that big job, I probably wouldn't have even tackled it. I probably would have pretended it wasn't happening. Uh, there's no way I would have even gone and got that, that X-ray because I was in pain back then. But I chose, chose to ignore it. So, and yeah. why, why do you think that is? I didn't prioritize anything other than work. Mm. It's as simple as that. Nothing else mattered but doing a good job. And that is, that is a great example of when people talk about anxiety and how that manifests, um, they, you know, we, we look at mental illness and we go, oh, it looks like this. That person wouldn't be able to function. That person wouldn't be able to get out of bed. You know, we have quite clear visions based on media and, and even just TV shows and so on of what mental health or, or poor mental health looks like. We very rarely think about poor mental health being someone who's high functioning, outwardly looks happy, smiling, networking, capable of doing deals and making things happen and getting shit done. We would never think that person is mentally very unwell, but I was. I was suffering extreme anxiety, which meant that thoughts beyond the thing that I was doing at that moment and thoughts beyond stress about that job just were impossible. I just didn't think them. And I was lucky that I had anxiety in many ways because, well, or unlucky for that matter, because if, if, I, if it manifested in me not being able to get out of bed, maybe I would have done something earlier. But it manifested in me pushing myself harder and harder and harder week on week. So no one would ever have been able to look at me and go, gosh, she's feeling mm. unwell, including myself, because I was achieving. I was moving forward, I thought. Mm. Well, achieving in one area of your life, which um, yeah, might have uh, been taking away from all the other areas. But like over this past, you know, decade, this journey that you've been on, like what are the what are some of the things that that you've really learned, or what what are some of the things that you really want people to take away after listening to this podcast? One of the big things that I've dealt with over the last year is is fear, and I haven't been able to mark it up as fear. until the last couple of months, I've been so fearful of other people taking away from me what I'd worked hard for or being able to hurt me in some way, which is actually, I believe, why I worked so hard. If I could just do work really well, no one else could really hurt me. So you couldn't hurt me at work, but then it also meant that I would shy away from relationships, meaning friendships that were getting too close definitely from relationships with with guys 
because it was something I couldn't control. I might get hurt. I might look silly. (laughs) I might humiliate myself, whatever. And what I've come to realize in walking into that office and, and quitting and then the fallout from that, because the fallout was substantial in terms of how I felt about myself, what I had to go through. If I knew I had to go through that, I would never have done it. I would still be there today. If you had said, this is what it's going to look like, this is how you'll feel, this is how you'll be treated, I would never have walked away. Um, But I'm so glad I did. Uh, The thing I didn't realise was I harboured so much fear. So the reason I wasn't able to actually start my business officially, now I'm now 20 months into the business and it's been so successful I've hired my first employee. We've now launched the business properly. You know, it's been fantastic, but it's taken me having this tumour to make me go, don't be fearful. No one can take away what you've worked for, who you are as a person. They can say whatever they want. They can do whatever they want, but no one can take away what you feel about yourself and your, I guess, inner strengths, although I'm not a big fan of those kind of words, but no one can take that away. You can go through anything and in hindsight I realized that that was something my mum always knew because you know she was in an abusive relationship and she still had sight of who she was and what her life and my life was going to be like but I had I didn't have sight of that and now I do and if I could go back and tell myself something it would be don't be fearful because that was the thing that actually made me work so hard this fear of people taking away this incredible career I'd had or that I wouldn't be able to be in the music industry anymore and now I'm back. Mm. So that's the main thing. And when I say fear, it comes into every part of your life, the decision not to, you know, go for a run because someone might go, look how unfit that person is and how red they are and how sweaty they are. I would, by the end, I wasn't even capable of exercising for fear that I might look silly. And that's not a vain thing. It was just an overwhelming feeling of, oh, I don't have any control here, that anything could happen. And in the end, something did happen that was totally out of my control and I had control over it in that I had control over my thoughts. So, yeah, and it was the the fearlessness of walking in and quitting and saying, no, this is my life, um, that was life-changing. One of the quotes that I read the week before I quit was from Steve Jobs about, I can't actually remember the quote exactly, but it was about how this is your life, it's no one else's and that you have to take hold of it because otherwise you'll basically die having lived a life that someone else wanted you to live. And that really resonated with me and now I live a life that is mine purely. I make decisions every day, which sounds really selfish, but it isn't because it actually benefits others in the end. But I make decisions every day to live the way that makes me happy. Mm. Um, yeah. And I've always, I've, I don't look back at those 10 years though and feel sad about them. I now can just see the bits that were amazing, the people I've met, the experiences I've had that are incredible. So now I only see the good bits of mm. that time and use that to make what I'm doing now even better. But there was a lot of times when I made decisions because I was fearful. Uh, I think fear is one of the big things that hold so many people back, you know, mm. and like with Inga and I going on our little family adventure, one of the things that, one of the key things that we did was actually bring fear because fear at the end of the day is in the future. And we, yeah. we brought fear to the present by just asking a simple question, like what is the worst that can happen? And we dealt with all of those things 
right now in the present. So if they do happen, we knew how we would deal with them. And the thing is, is that those big future things never really happen. I think it was Mark Twain said something along the lines of, you know, I feared a lot of things in my life that never eventuated. You know, I'm paraphrasing there, but it's so true. Like people people are really held back by fear and it's i guess it's a really big thing that that i'm about is 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 trying to deal with that instead of just pushing through the fear which i know really works for some people and it probably works for someone like myself that doesn't really worry about a kind of a whole bunch of stuff but mm-hmm. i know that there are people that like that whole just pushing through it, it doesn't really work but i think there are some great tactics out there to really bring uh, fear into the present. So I, I really agree with um, everything that you said there, Zoe. I really do. But I, I have one last question for you today, mm. and it is one that I do ask all my guests, and that's to uh, please describe your perfect day. My perfect day, which is nearly every day, is not setting my alarm. I still wake up at the same time, but the process of not having to set that alarm the night before when you go to bed is incredibly freeing. Uh, such an insignificant little thing, but it, it makes a world of difference. So waking up um, and having the time to do what I want to do, so be that, read a little bit or take my time looking on social media and seeing what my friends are doing or having a coffee in the sun, but just taking a little bit of time without thinking, oh, I should be doing, I should be doing. And that has quite literally taken me a year to get to a point where I now no longer wake up and create a list. So my perfect day doesn't involve a list. It involves me moving through the day in terms of I know what I need to get done for my clients. My clients will also bring new things in um, that maybe I didn't see coming. But a great day is having the time in the morning to do whatever I want, which could be having a coffee with a friend, sitting in the sun for a bit, having time to go for a walk or a run, spending time in my business, which I love. I've been able to choose the clients that I want to work with. I am inspired by my clients and hopefully inspire them in return. So I get so much satisfaction out of work. What was always the best part of my job is now all of my job, um, which is amazing. So I, I really enjoy work. And then taking time of a night time to, to do the things I want to do. And if that means watching a crappy TV show, fine. If that means listening to music, fine. If that means working, also fine. Um, and the one thing I have kind of done, though, is I, I have been very clear about my boundaries. So I now no longer accept new work questions and, you know, things that basically send you on a path of doing work you don't really want to do. I don't do that after about six o'clock. If I'm working, it's because I've chosen to do it and I want to engage. But otherwise, if someone contacts me and says, can you do this? I will usually say, I'm actually not working tonight, but that will be done tomorrow. So a perfect day is really having the control to live exactly how I want to live. Now, control is a It's a kind of a negative word because people think it means being controlling. But I mean more the control of my choices. Mm. I get to choose what I do in any given day. Um, Music is probably the most powerful thing in my life and it's the thing that went, that was the first thing that went out of my life when I lost the ability to choose. And now I know that if ever I'm having a bad day or, you know, something's gone wrong or just feeling a bit shitty because I've just had an operation, if I can just put my headphones in and listen to a couple of songs and sit outside and drink some water, 
I can completely change my attitude. And I just didn't have those tools before. So having those tools to fix things and, and bring myself back to the moment, oh, it means that every day is a perfect day. And I know I sound like a cliche and I try not to be super, super positive all the time because I think people go, oh, whatever, that's not believable. I completely I- disagree. I think you should be super, super positive all the time. Well, anyway, if you want to hang around me, I think you should be super, super positive yes. all the time because I love hanging around people that are going to, you know, lift me up and keep me smiling and, and, and not drain on me. But I also agree, Zoe, about the whole control and choice because I'm I, like you, I sometimes am hesitant about that using the word control because there is some negativity around there. But I think you hit the nail on the head there. It's about that choice. And some, you know, you might not get it 100% of the time, but if you can get it more times than not, then I think you're winning. Yeah. And what I probably mean by control is the ability to control my thoughts. Um, and thoughts are so powerful. The thoughts used to make me think I was nothing without that job. And if I didn't achieve, 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 and I'm not saying there weren't out, outside influences, but you have a lot to do with what you do in the world in terms of the decisions you make. I really believe that we have a lot more control than we think we do over what happens around us in terms of positivity and who we attract, all of that stuff. So before I used to have no control, it was one thought, work harder or you will die, basically. And I don't think I ever, you know, said that's the thought, but that was a pretty clear thought in my head. I either do this or I've got nothing, failure. So now it's the ability to control my thoughts, which means, yeah, there are shitty times in any life. There are times when you go, oh, that guy I really liked didn't ring me or my friends upset me or that client's doing something weird. But nowadays, the things that used to feel completely massive and overwhelming and dramatic are just things that I go, okay, you're feeling crap about that. What are you going to do now? And that's when I now have the ability to choose how I'm going to think. And that could be just removing myself from that situation. I did not have that choice before. Um, And that makes a world of difference, which is how I can now go through life and think, you know, people keep saying, how was the surgery? That must have been terrible. Physically awful. I felt awful. But mentally, totally fine. Mm. Haven't suffered at all. And I never thought I could do that. And to go back to the point about Mark Twain and the things we worry about, I would never have thought that I would get a tumour and potentially have to have my finger removed, which is still a thing. This is never going to go away for me. This tumour could come back at any time. I'm aware of that, although I don't think about it. I would never have worried about that. I couldn't even begin to think that that was a possibility for me. The things I worried about were being alone, losing things, being in a plane crash, you know, stuff Mm. that just you can't control. But um, in the end, I actually was alone way more than I realized. And I created that situation in many ways. The thing I was scared of, I almost created by being scared of it. So, yeah, and the thing I wasn't scared of was the thing that happened. And it turns out I was pretty good at it. I mean, you know, if you're going to have a tumour, have a really rare one, do a good job of it, be, you know, spread the word. And, you know, for me, it means being able to say to everyone, if something hurts, 
consistently even just your finger, which as an adult is tough to say, I've go, go to a doctor and say, I've got a sore finger. It's a really tough thing to <laughs> try and do because, you know, we've all got a lot of perspective in terms of what the media tells us is happening in other countries and so on. You know, we all realise that we're very lucky to have the lives we have in Australia. Um, but I wish I had have gone to the doctor earlier. I don't regret now that I ha- didn't because this is what's happened yeah. and it's been actually really positive but if I could say something to people around health it is don't ignore the nagging feeling be it a mental issue or a or a physical one because if you seek help you know you're going you're getting closer to to a solution and if you don't you're getting further away from a solution so yeah well Beautiful words of wisdom, and I completely agree. I just love that. Don't ignore the nagging feeling. But, um, like, Zoe, I just want to say thank you for your time today and your courageous story. And I really do hope that people listening take on board one, and you might hate it, but your beautiful positivity. Like, I love it. And I think also, too, just that realization that, hey, if you are in a rut, you don't necessarily need to quit your job, but maybe just kind of have a bit of a look inside and go, are there some things that I need to change? Do, do I have a nagging feeling that I'm ignoring and that I, I need to kind of give a, give a bit of time to be a little bit mindful about, but if people do want to reach out to you and, and follow your journey and um, learn a little bit about you, what's the best way for them to do that? I mean, Instagram is definitely something that I love. There's a lot of pictures of the sky, so I apologize in advance, but um, one of the things they don't tell you about getting a hold of your life is that you actually start to notice things like the flowers, you know, <laughs> and the sky. So there's a lot of that on my Instagram, but definitely my Instagram, which is at a girl called Zoe. Uh, in terms of my business, it's Paisley Music and Media. Um, and whilst that's my business side, my business is very much who I am and how a lot of people connect with me um, because we do a lot of different things. So there's also that which um, I talk about a fair bit on my Instagram. But, yeah, Instagram is the way to do it. I also write a bit, which um, I really love and never had the time to do before. So you'll often see articles from me on The Cusp, um, which is a great website. So, yeah. Oh, happy days. Well, I'll make sure that... All the links are in the show notes at liveimmediately.com, like usual. Is there anything that I've missed out, anything that you, you wanted to say before we say our goodbye, Zoe? Not really other than, you know, I wish that we could somehow get this across to as many people as possible of, of just start to make some decisions that are purely based on happiness and what's going to get you to where you want to be as opposed to the many, many goals we set ourselves and we're programmed to set goals as, you know, the media tells us out. We're programmed to do it from our education. Our parents want us to do well. We're programmed to do it. But sometimes the goal should be as broad as happiness or being free. Sounds very hippie, but I think we need to start setting some goals that are not related to achievements or milestones relating to work or or whatever. It needs to be more general than that. And I wish that I could get that across to so many people because I don't want other people to suffer um, by being in a rut. But, yeah. Well, I second that, Zoe. So let's um, 
somehow figure out a way that we can do that together or help each other. Because right? I'm a hundred percent agree that we should definitely have some more goals that are for ourselves and our happiness and our well being and um, things that at the end of the day put huge smiles on our faces. But yeah. Thanks again, Zoe. It, it really was wonderful. And I just want to say thank you to everybody for listening. And until next time, have fun and live immediately. That was another episode of the Live Immediately podcast with Mike Campbell. Thanks so much for listening. The original Live Immediately theme music is by the multi-talented Timothy McPhee. You can check out his music at firekites.bandcamp.com. If you enjoyed the show, had some fun, and maybe even learned something, then make sure you subscribe via iTunes. And while you're there, why not leave a rating and a review? You know it's going to make my day. Thanks for stopping by and giving me some of your time today. I'll catch you on the next episode. And until then, have fun and live immediately.